Welcome to Stories of COVID, the interview project that explores what it's like to experience a global pandemic. I never thought I would see this in my lifetime. It is scary and it's very real, but it's not hopeless. As I said, I changed three planes. None of them were wearing any gloves or masks. I've never seen so much support for freelancers or artists in the in the media um, as I have now. They both laid me off from just the advent of the, the outbreak. I'm anthropologist and author Veronica Kieran, and I am building an interview archive of stories and anecdotes that define this time in history to write a book preserving this experience for future generations. If you'd like to help preserve this moment in history for future generations, check out the show notes to sign up for an interview. Meet Matthew. He lives in the middle of the United States and has been acting as a contact tracer for the Department of Health for most of the pandemic. In this episode, he describes how contact tracing works, why it's important, and how the effects of the pandemic have changed the way the health departments address illness and disease. I was probably one of the first few people, like at least in my sphere, to know about it. Because um, where I had been working at the time, um, I mean, most of my professional experience was as a substance abuse or addiction counselor. And so I was working at the Arizona Smokers Helpline in Tucson. And so just in, in downtime between talking to clients, I would like read news articles and, you know, kind of delve deeply into things. And so I had seen a passing reference. This was like second or third of January of 2020. I had seen a passing reference to a novel virus that had been identified in the Wuhan province of China. And I was like, huh, this sounds kind of like SARS from back when I was a kid, which was not a big deal. And so just kind of wrote it off. And then like, I don't know, two or three weeks later, there was a positive case identified in Arizona, uh, which was a little bit odd. Um, the, the student from China who had returned to, I think, Arizona State after the semester break or something. And so there was like this flurry of fear in Arizona. And then it fizzled out again because, you know, it wasn't a big deal yet. It was still like late January. So I was just like, oh, that's that thing I read about a couple of weeks ago. That's interesting. Still probably not going to be a big deal if, you know, SARS and MERS were any indication. In Arkansas, probably not something I've been following as closely since I worked for Yuma County in Arizona still. It seems like just because we're in a very rural area, uh, there obviously are not, you know, very high case numbers or anything like that. I know vaccination hesitancy is still really high in Arkansas. Um, we're something like 45th or 46th in the country for vaccination rates by state, you know. Beating out Mississippi, though. Thank heaven for Mississippi. I don't know if I can give a really accurate answer for that because I don't have a lot of direct interaction with a lot of other people here, being that I you know, work remotely. I don't go to work at an office or anything. And we, our other business, we just run from home here. But um, I know that we're really low on vaccination rates. And even the businesses, like if we, if we go up to Fort Smith, the businesses that still say we strongly encourage masks, or nobody's wearing a mask, you know, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, my first sort of brazen, oh, that's not going to be a big deal, uh, thoughts were, well, they were probably right at the time, but not for much longer. I think it's odd overall that it was sort of vitriolically politicized 
and obviously there were some that was deliberate in some regards and then there was a calculated response to that i think the media definitely has a vested interest in making things seem a little bit more drastic or overblown than they actually are but the in this case for whatever reason the really strong pushback and you know conflicting media narratives has been i think a lot really overwhelming for a lot of people been fortunate in that I nobody that I know closely or knew really well um, had had a serious case of COVID. Like I had a couple cousins that had minor cases and some really really distantly connected people uh, that I knew. I know one relative of my wife's died from COVID-induced pneumonia. He was an older fellow, and that's really the closest it ever got to me. But I'd certainly been affected by some of the further-reaching impacts of it. I mean the uh, sort of economic fallout and plans that we had like for last summer that didn't pan out. We were we were going to spend the last summer in Pittsburgh. My wife had an internship at Carnegie Mellon University for her program and I was excited about this job that I had lined up there and then that obviously did not happen. And you know, we had plans to like go to Europe last summer after the thing in Pittsburgh obviously did not happen. And so it's been sort of I don't know, I, I mean that's inconvenient and annoying. It's not like one of my parents died or anything but uh, yeah i don't i don't know if i've just like had a sort of the light covid experience or something overall it's been a really really positive thing for me personally i mean aside from the couple of inconvenient things you know having to spend an extra summer in tucson when it was super hot and and stuff and not getting to take a, a couple of trips that we had planned on being able to get a better job as a result of the COVID pandemic, because I like being a contact tracer a lot more than I liked being a counselor for nicotine ad addiction. Being positioned to buy a house when we did, um, you know, just that really convenient drop off in the housing market and the huge drop in mortgage rates that made it possible for us to buy a house a couple of years sooner than we had planned on. Moving to a part of the country that we like a lot more, being able to ride my bike a lot more, being able to finally start working from home, which is something I'd always wanted to do. And then completely unexpectedly starting a business, which was not really a plan that I ever had as I was sitting in psychology classes as an undergrad, I didn't ever think this is really leading me up to a career in uh, used vehicle import and sales. But that's been working out really well. And again, it's it's not a direct result of the pandemic, but it's because of the other things that did directly result from the huge shift in our life plan. I have very few complaints, honestly, at least on a personal level. Well, I think it's hard to say what the what the lasting impacts are going to be. It's certainly caused a cultural shift, at least in our country and probably a little bit broader in the world. But the U.S. has been more strongly affected by it than any other country, you know, on a percentage basis of serious cases and deaths and, and that sort of thing. And so I think there's going to be, well, I guess I could compare it to we have cases of long COVID right? The long-term um, lung scarring and cognitive impacts of it. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what the long COVID effects are on the United States culture. If this is going to prove to be a, a permanent wedge, like in the political divide or in the, in the anti-vaccination insanity, if, the, if it's going to become a more permanent thing, or if it's just going to be something that flares up for a couple of years, and then we're going to look back on it and be like, oh, yeah, that was the time when everybody wanted to kill each other because of a virus that was killing people, you know. And, and that's why I don't know what, the, what that outcome is going to be, but it's certainly something that's going to have to be watched. It's kind of funny. Um, 
early on, I mean, a year and a half ago, a little over a year and a half, actually, how far are we into this thing? Nobody had ever heard of Zoom, right? Um, there were like five or 10 companies that were using it. And then all of a sudden, Zoom comes roaring in to fill a vacuum that didn't actually exist. Microsoft is sitting on the sidelines like, we've had Skype for how long, people, and you all just ran over to this other thing. But they've made a product that worked better. Um, so, I mean, there's that, obviously. Uh, we bought a house pretty much entirely over the internet. We came here one time in person, and then the day that we moved in, we signed our closing documents at the title office in person. But everything else was done, you know, remotely over, uh, I think we used DocuSign or Adobe Sign or something like that to do all that stuff, um, which was technically possible before the pandemic, but certainly was not an expectation. And I think any realtor worth their salt before the pandemic would have been like, we really want to be going over these papers with you in person. Whereas it was like, yeah, we'll just send you everything, look it over and let me know if you have questions. So I think that really big cultural shift that now is just sort of an expectation and acceptable to do sort of serious business um, remotely is is pretty significant and lasting. And then of course, there are a lot of really huge companies and small companies as well that are like, you know what, we don't need to pay high lease rates uh, on big office spaces when everybody can do this from their own homes. And the workers by and large like that better. I have a few cousins actually in Utah that work in the technology industry there uh, that I was just talking to over the summer. And they were both obviously working remotely for a long time. And then they were among those that had the option you want to do a blended like a hybrid work schedule come into the office some days uh stay at home some days and so they were like this is awesome having the freedom to do that like on days when the kids are all at school and there's nothing going on at home i can go into the office and see my officers there on days when it'd be better for me to be at home i can work from home and they like having the greater freedom from that so i think that's definitely a positive outcome um, that the work culture in the u.s is probably permanently shifted in that way um, to i think most people's benefit and then the other, I think, benefit of it is that um, it's done more for um, probably labor rights and workers than I think any organized strike or union effort has in over a century. In that, I mean, because a ton of people got laid off really fast, and um, then all of a sudden companies were scrambling to hire people and get them to come back to work. I mean, I'm in Arkansas, right, which has one of the lowest costs of living in the entire nation. And there are billboards like all the way between here and Fort Smith from Tyson Foods, Butterball Turkey, people like that. Start today, no experience, $18 an hour, um, $2,000 higher on bonus if you show up every day for the first three months. And I mean, these are not skilled positions. It's just regular eight hour shifts and they're paying through the nose for people to do it. And of course, there's some trickle down from that to, to grocery prices, but not nearly as much as I think people would have expected with with those wages increasing so much. And a lot of people who were labeled as essential workers early on in the pandemic, I think it took a while, but are now being treated more as essential. Like companies literally cannot function without certain positions. And so that's been kind of cool to see. And I think that'll have further reaching impacts as well. I think the biggest one would probably have to be moving right in the middle of it because I'm still working for uh, one of the county governments in Arizona. My wife is still a doctoral student at the University of Arizona. And we just had this really unexpected opportunity to move to the, the woods in Western Arkansas and buy a really cool house on property, which was something that we had wanted to do, not necessarily in Arkansas, but our plan had always been, we'll finish things up 
you know, academically get going career wise. And then we want to buy a house on land outside of a town. You know, we don't want to be around a lot of people. We want to have space and, and things like that. And that just seemed like it was something that was a few years off still. And so all of a sudden we had this opportunity because we didn't need to be in Arizona. Everything was remote. It was going to stay remote. And all of a sudden we could afford it. And so we were just able to jump in with both feet really. And so a few years earlier than we had expected to, we were like learning how to do basic remodel projects. And I was buying woodworking tools and uh, trying to learn some basic carpentry skills because like we built an island in the kitchen and things like that. And so it's just like we got this big head start on something, which was honestly really, really amazing. Because I don't know if you've moved a lot of times in a short space of time, you get sick of it and you just like want to be done. And all of a sudden we were done and we were just here and like places that we've lived before, we never really bothered getting to know people because we knew we were going to be gone within a year and we would learn our way around town. But it's like we don't really care, like go grocery shopping at this place or that one, like it doesn't matter. And now it's like we know where we're going and it's really, really nice to just feel done with that part of our lives. And now we're here. Um, and get to know people. I've got the guy I can text when I need to know, hey, who's the best plumber in town or, you know, stuff like that. I don't know. I've got a gravel guy that I can call when we when we're doing landscaping. I've never had a gravel guy before. So it's just things like that, that I would never have expected to be more settled at this point in my life. And that would not be the case were it not for COVID. So I exclusively, I work for the University of Arizona, but they contracted this group of several contact tracers to the Yuma County Department of Health. If one of them goes into any lab testing facility, whether that's a Walgreens or a CVS, or even now we're having um, like in the schools, in the public schools, if the nurse does a rapid test for a kid, then that's supposed to be reported ideally the same day as that, that result is available. That's supposed to be reported to the County Health Department. Some of the facilities. Walgreens is the worst. Walgreens sometimes takes a month to report their positive cases, which of course makes it completely ineffective at that point for contact tracing at the county level. Like it's fine if the person knows, but for us, we get these results from a month ago and I'm like, okay, well that case is already closed now, so it doesn't matter. But most of them are pretty good about it, reporting it to us within the first couple of days. So that comes into the county database and then they just divide that up among the current contact tracers. Um, so on my caseload on any given day, I'll have, you know, a dozen, up to a couple dozen people to call. And so when I get a hold of them, I want to know, first off, I have their test date. So I want to know what day did you first start having symptoms? Like how many days before that test date was it? Because that's relevant. We automatically assume the day you start having symptoms, you were contagious for approximately 48 hours before you notice your symptoms. So that's what we want to narrow down. And then what public places were you in during the 48 hours before you first started having your headache or fever or whatever it was that you first noticed um, that later turned out to be COVID. And in a lot of cases early on, well, I, I got hired in the summer of 2020, in like August. And so I guess relative to now, that was still fairly early on. Although at the time it seemed like, wow, we're probably towards the end of this thing, aren't we? Early on, people were like, well, you know, we can't go many places because everything's closed, but we were still like at our friends for dinner the other night, stuff like that. Now it's like, oh, we haven't been going anywhere. You know, <laughs> the kids have gone to school, I've gone to work and that's it. So like, as long as the school and the place of work are aware, that you later tested positive, then then the job is basically done at that point. And then we just need to see, were there other people in the family that have been tested already? What's your vaccination status and that thing? So earlier on, it was really a lot more direct contact tracing. Um, oh, and then the other thing is if they've been on a plane, then we need to get a lot of details for that travel 
because we then need to notify the airlines um, a person on this flight um, and if they knew their seat obviously that's better because we can say they were in this seat which is not a HIPAA violation because then the airline just goes in and sees who's, who was in that seat you know if it was assigned seating Southwest they can't do that because Southwest doesn't know where you sit it's open seating on Southwest but a lot of airlines know the name of the person in each seat and so we would report that to him as well I had kind of an interesting one the other day so I had called this family Lately, most of the cases I've been getting assigned are school-aged kids because that's been the largest surge in cases ever since August of this year. And so most of my cases are school-aged kids, but then I follow up and ask about test status for the rest of the family. And in a lot of cases, the parents were already vaccinated, but not all the kids are. So anyways, this like eight or nine-year-old girl or something tested positive. They were notified on Monday that there had been an exposure in her classroom, at which point she had already been tested. She stayed home from school on Monday and went to be tested and tested positive. And later that day, the school called and said, hey, there was an exposure in that classroom on Thursday. And they were like, yeah, we know now. Well, on Friday night, the preceding Friday night, that family in whom nobody was sick yet had gone to Chuck E. Cheese for a couple hours. And then they went to uh, Get Air, which is a tramp an indoor trampoline park after, after Chuck E. Cheese. So that was Friday night. And then Monday morning, the girl started having symptoms. So we count back, okay, Saturday, Maybe she was exposed, but it's more likely that she was exposed on Thursday or Friday at school and took longer to become symptomatic because with kids, usually they take a little bit longer to become symptomatic than adults. Um, so we were able to pretty positively narrow down the exposure to her classroom at school. And then she was at her most contagious while they were at Chuck E. Cheese and at the trampoline park. So after verifying that everybody in the family had tested positive and they were quarantining and they knew how long they needed to stay home and everything like that, they said, well, no, the people at Chuck E. Cheese and, and get air, they don't know. And, but the school knows and, you know, dad's boss knows. Okay, great. So then I called Chuck E. Cheese and I said, there was a family there. They were there approximately between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. And they had a positive case. So obviously you can't let all of your patrons from that time know because you don't have a list of everybody who was there that day. But you know who your employees were that was there that day. So please have them tested and ask them to stay home until they have a test result. And they said, okay. And then we called the trampoline place and I said there was a family who was there during that time. Now the trampoline place is different because they have signed waivers from everybody who was there. And so they do have a name and a phone number for everybody who was at the place during those hours. Um, so I said they were there from five to seven and they said, okay, we can let all of our customers who were here from five to seven know that they were possibly exposed. So that was a little bit different, but that was at least later on, you know, more recently, that was definitely the most in-depth contact tracing and notifying that I had done where most of that had tapered off. Um, within the last six months or so, just because a lot of people had been like, we're mostly staying home. We're not really going anywhere. The worst one though was, let me try and think when it was. It was like last November. Yeah, because we were still in Tucson. I talked to this guy, he was a border control agent. And so he had been exposed. He actually worked in one of the facilities where people were detained, um, uh, asylum seekers were detained. And so he had been exposed there, he was pretty sure. But then, like, he got off work on a Friday. Saturday morning, they flew to see some of his family in upstate New York. And then two days later, while he was there, became symptomatic. He knew there had been a COVID exposure at the asylum-seeking facility. He was one of those that did not think COVID was really a real thing. Being a Border Patrol agent, he had already been offered the vaccine at that point. And, of course, this was long before the federal employee's mandate. So he'd be like, no, I'm not getting that. While he was in New York, became symptomatic, obviously recognized it as COVID because he couldn't smell or taste. Everybody knew that one by that point. And then flew back home to Arizona because he knew that if he had a positive test, he wouldn't be allowed to, to 
certificate on the plane. So then once he got back to Arizona, the day he got back, took a test, obviously was positive. So that one was just kind of a nightmare because between upstate New York, which is kind of rural, and Yuma County, which is a spur airport as well, he'd been like four different connecting flights between New York and Yuma, Arizona. So that one was just a nightmare. And he was getting like really aggressive um, with me asking all these questions. Well, this is against HIPAA. I'm like, it's not actually against HIPAA. Um, this is standard public health procedure. And, you know, all the information you tell me is HIPAA protected, but I can ask you anything I want. It's up to you whether or not you want to answer me. So he was the headache. And then he refused to give me any of his children's names because we had to, of course, ask if their schools were aware that there had been an exposure. He wouldn't tell me which schools they were in, which we have the ability to look up anyway. It's just easier if they tell us. I didn't tell him that, but I was like, okay, I can still find out where your kids go to school if I want to. So yeah, that was probably like, the worst call I ever had, and it took forever. It was weird. He gave me all this flight information, but wouldn't tell me where his kids went to school. Thank you for listening. Subscribe so that you don't miss an interview. I interview multiple people a week, and I am releasing these episodes as fast as I can. And if the story meant something to you, share it, because it will probably mean something to someone else. Every time you share the project, it helps the project grow. So thank you. Until next time, stay safe, stay well.